Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Saturday seminar, the second uh, of our seminars. We're uh, glad that you're all here. Trust that everybody is uh, wide awake and ready to go. Uh, just a couple of, uh, of uh, administrative uh, detail before we get into the seminar. Uh, first of all, uh, just to let you know that the sessions are being recorded and uh, just, just, just so that you know uh, for that. Um, and also that the uh, chat room uh, will be open for questions that you might have. And uh, as time allows, uh, we will have a question and answer time at the end of our session together. So we wanna welcome you. Um, there are about 45 plus uh, individuals that have registered and uh, some may not all be here today, but um, we want to uh, welcome you uh, to our, our session. Just uh, to remind you that uh, we do have a service uh, tomorrow morning at 1030. Uh, we have uh, about 150 people uh, registered uh, for the service. We are pretty well at capacity, although um, because of COVID, we uh, certainly are not going to turn anybody away. We will make sure that you have a spot. It may not be, it will not be in the auditorium if you are are later, but uh, we have uh, some provision for you. Um, just uh, also to let you know that, and to remind you again that our pastoral candidate uh, will be preaching uh, here on November the 7th, and uh, with a vote that will take place on uh, the 10th of November. The next session, our, our next session will be on November the 13th. So there will be no session next Saturday, but uh, we'll be back on the 13th. Uh, our topic um, is understanding the Holy Spirit. Even in, um, in uh, entitling the, the, the topic, I realized that's a bit presumptuous, understanding the Holy Spirit and I thought it probably should have been uh, entitled uh, uh, Going Toward an Understanding of the Holy Spirit. And um, we are looking forward to uh, our presenter, uh, Dr. Michael A.G. Haken. Just a, a word in terms of uh, Dr. Haken. Um, Michael uh, serves as a professor of church history at uh, Heritage uh, College and Seminary. And uh, he's been involved with the seminary, uh, I believe since its, its, its inception in around 1993. And before that, <clears throat> he was a professor of uh, church history at uh, Central Baptist Seminary in Toronto. We can. Um, also uh, presently, uh, Dr. Haken, Haken is a professor of church history at the Southern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and is the director of 
the uh, Andrew Fuller, Fuller uh, Center for uh, Baptist uh, Studies. Uh, Michael has a BA in philosophy uh, from the University of Toronto, um, master's in religious in religion uh, from Wycliffe College, uh, the University of Toronto, uh, and uh, a doctorate uh, also in church history uh, from the University of Toronto Wycliffe College. Um, my understanding, if I remember correctly, Michael, uh, that uh, one of your dissertations was actually on an understanding of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we're glad that you're here. Um, Michael and his uh, wife, um, Allison, uh, live in Dundas and uh, are attending uh, West Highland Baptist in uh, in uh, in uh, um, in addition to all of that um, Michael is the author of a number of uh, books particularly in the area of patristic and uh, English Baptist studies so Michael thank you thank you very much for uh, coming to uh, to be with us and uh, we uh, perhaps we just have a word of prayer and then uh, and uh, turn you loose in terms of our session together. Father, thank you for each uh, individual who's on this Zoom and for our presenter, uh, Dr. Haken. Thank you for the time that we can uh, share together. We would ask particularly that by the spirit of God, you would guide our thoughts and uh, that um, our time together would be uh, not just a matter of academic understanding, but uh, a fuller understanding of who you are, the third person of the Trinity. Thank you for uh, this time and we commit ourselves to you. And in the strong name of the Lord Jesus, we pray, amen. Amen. Well, it's a delight uh, to be with you. I was saying to your pastor that it would be great to have been in um, a person because I don't think I've ever been. Well, I know I have been to Creswick. Um, over the years, uh, I started teaching at um, Central Baptist Seminary, the Fellowship Seminary in 1982. So I've had opportunity to speak uh, or to attend or to visit. Um, um, probably most of our fellowship churches in southern Ontario. By southern Ontario, I mean um, uh, south of uh, probably Barrie or maybe, you know, NBC, uh, Algonquin Park. And Crestwick is one that I've never been to. So I, I didn't even know exactly where it was in Guelph. So I would have been delightful to have been with you. But um, very thankful for Zoom and the sort of technology that enables us to be able to meet like this. And uh, thank you to uh, Stephanie, who's been able to facilitate this. So our theme is uh, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And over our four sessions, uh, we're gonna kind of dip our toes into this river. And we'll see that the river is an appropriate image to talk about the work of the Spirit. Um, a, 
kind of list of the topics uh, that I was going to deal with was sent out, I believe. But I'm going to begin today with uh, the uh, experience that we know as Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and uh, the gift of the Spirit, the fact that the great promise of the Old Testament is that the, the Messiah would give the Holy Spirit to all of his people. And uh, that becomes a reality at Pentecost. And we want to think about what that means for us along three specific lines. Um, in later uh, weeks, we'll look at the work of the Spirit, the experience of the Spirit. What, is it, what does it mean to experience the Spirit? And then the final session, we'll kind of bring back, uh, which is where I was thinking about beginning, but I think it's very good to end there. That is the person of the Holy Spirit. Who is he? Um, this will be touched on as we go along. He, he is a person. He can be grieved. He speaks. Um, and he is none other than the third person of the blessed Godhead. That he is fully God, shares to the full all of the divine attributes of the Father and the Son. But uh, that's where we'll end. Um, today, we want to begin with Pentecost. And what does this mean? So I hope you have a Bible. I will be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Um, uh, it's probably a version that's not that common in Canada, but in the, in the United States where I do teach, uh, at Southern in Kentucky, um, uh, I've been commuting there for quite a while now. Uh, the Christian Standard Bible is a, um, a product of what's known as Broadman, Holman, or B&H, which is the Southern Baptist uh, publishing arm. And so I've gotten to read the Christian Standard Bible, and it's actually a quite a good version. But anyway, I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. So let's, uh, let's begin then thinking about Pentecost. I want to begin with background in the Old Testament. And one of the most critical things for understanding the Bible is geography. It's something we don't pay a lot of attention to. Um, but if you go through the Old Testament and New Testament, there are all kinds of names of places, which if you're going to understand the flow of history and what action in both the Old and New Testaments, it's helpful to have some idea as to where these places are in relation to one another. When we talk about geography, we also talk about climate. And climate is kind of the jumping off point that I want to begin with in thinking about Pentecost. There are two seasons of the year in Israel, historically, that have been seasons of rain. There is the um, uh, autumn rainfall and the spring rainfall, uh, the, what are called the early and the latter rains. Um, the summer, which lies between them, can be very, very dry uh, with no rainfall at all. Um, this past summer for us here in Southern Ontario has been extremely rainy. Um, my wife is delighted by it because it means our grass is green and the flowers are blooming, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm not as delighted. I'm not as enamored with grass as my wife is. Um, and uh, the, um, the grayness of the sky, I find somewhat depressing, but all that aside. Um, <clears throat> 
in Israel, Israel, the summers would historically back in the biblical times, Bible times, be seasons without rain at all. And many of the rivers that would be filled with the, the, the rain of the spring rainfall would dry up completely. And um, this kind of, what, what, what resulted from this was that animals would find themselves often in dire straits, panting for water. It's this image that is used in Psalm 42, which is where we want to begin today. Psalm 42 and verse 1 and 2. Psalm 42 verses 1 and 2. So we've got this background image of a summer without rainfall, so much so that the riverbeds, uh, the rivers that are normally filled with rain, rain obviously from springs, um, but also water uh, from springs, but also rain from the uh, spring rains has dried up. And obviously the springs are not, in some of these rivers, are not powerful enough to fill the, the river during the summer months. And we read this, as a deer longs for flowing streams, and the pictures of a deer in the summer months panting for water. So I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. The picture is a very vivid one of the thirst of the believer, the thirst of the deer being a picture of the thirst, what should be the thirst of the believer. Given this kind of association of thirst for God with water, the the uh, an animal's thirst for water, a human's thirst for water, uh, that becomes a parable of the, uh, the 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 inner thirst that we should have for God. It's not surprising that the downpour that would come in the fall, or the downpour that would come in the spring, is often likened to this is what God does when He presences Himself among us or when he is present by the Holy Spirit. So another uh, passage in the Old Testament, which lies directly behind the uh, book of Acts, which we'll go to in a second, is the prophet, the minor prophet, Joel. And in Joel chapter 2 of uh, his prophecy, so it's in the uh, back of the New Testament, uh, the 12 minor prophets, Hosea, and then first is for Hosea, and then Joel. In Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 30, we see the imagery. Now, there are a number of places in the Old Testament where this imagery of, of the Spirit being likened to water is used. Um, but this is important because this is the one that will be cited by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost as what was happening on the day of Pentecost. So Joel chapter 2, verse 28. After this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams. Your young men will see visions. I'll even pour out my spirit on the male and female uh, slaves in those days. I'll display wonders in the heavens and on the earth blood and fire and columns of smoke. 
The sun will be turned into to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. As the Lord promised, among the survivors, the Lord calls. So a couple of things to note here. One is this, first of all, it's a prophecy. It's a prophetic word of what God will do in what are uh, described as the, really, broadly speaking, the last days. And secondly, it is the gift of the Spirit. And the Spirit is compared to a downfall of rain or a downfall of water. And uh, thirdly, the link with salvation. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, you'll notice also there are some cosmic events that are so associated here uh, with the heavens. I'm not going to get into how those uh, uh, are fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Um, if we were doing a full interpretation of this passage, we would need to. But I just want to draw your attention that this is one of a number. If you wanted to look at others, um, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 44, verse 3, has a similar uh, emphasis that this is, this is going to be a gift that God will give to his people in the last days, namely the person on work of the Holy Spirit. Or Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, verses 24 to 27. So those are Old Testament passages. But turn now to the New Testament. And before we go directly to, to um, the book of Acts, turn to the Gospel of John. Uh, there are a number of times in Christ's ministry that he refers to what will take place at Pentecost. But the Gospel of John has a number of very, very clear references. And I'm thinking particularly of the passages in John that we call, that uh, scholars call the farewell discourse, which is John 14 through 16. John 14 through 16. And this is the passage that is the teaching that is unique uh, to John, in which John records teaching that Jesus gave um, immediately prior to his suffering and his death and his resurrection. So there's a number of verses we could look at, but I want to look at two or three. Um, John 14, 26. John 14 and verse 26. Uh, Jesus says in the verse immediately before this, John 14, 25, I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. So this is uh, a passage that gives the title. Um, the Christian Standard Bible translates it as Counselor. Um, it's actually a very difficult word to translate. The old King James used to call it Comforter. And... Um, the Old King James uh, translation there was an older English meaning of the word to comfort, uh, the verb, or the noun comforter. 
in the old English idea, it had to do with a person who comes alongside you and strengthens you, encourages you, but particularly puts strength in you. Uh, the little word F-O-R-T is a Latin root. It goes back to the idea of strength and power. Um, in the development of the English language over the last four or 500 years, 400 years, uh, the word comfort and to comfort has come to mean something a bit different. Um, it, it, it doesn't immediately bring to mind the idea of power and strength. And so newer translations translate it uh, a variety of ways. It's not an easy word to translate, but it's got to do with the idea of somebody who comes alongside you to encourage, to strengthen, uh, to be an advocate for you, to speak on your behalf, as it were. Um, now, here in John 14, 26, it's a very clear, it's a future promise. Um, Christ is going away, but he will send to uh, his disciples the comforter, the counselor, who is the Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, here Jesus specifically says, the Father will send the Spirit. A second passage in John, Jesus brings this up a number of times, is John 15, 26. So John 14, 26, John 15, 26. In John 15, 26, Jesus again alludes to this future event. And he says, when the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father. So in the, very interesting, we'll pick this up at the end of our series. But in John 14, 26, the Father will send the Spirit. Now, that's understandable to anybody in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit is the Father's to send. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. Um, if anybody commands the Spirit, as it, as it were, and we're using that word command in um, quotation marks, because we're speaking metaphorically, uh, it would be the Father. But here, Jesus says, I will send the Spirit. This is a remarkable statement. I just want you to, you know, you can easily jump over this. Here's a man, Jesus of Nazareth, a remarkable uh, individual in the eyes of these disciples, gathered there at what we call the Last Supper. But they still probably don't have a full understanding of who this person is. If they were, they would not have been dismayed by the crucifixion. When they were, their hopes were completely dashed. And here Jesus says, and again, the full import of this would only be realized later. I will send the spirit. Well, who is, who, what human being can command the spirit? It's, it's really a remarkable statement. So when the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will testify about me. And that little thing, I'm going to pick this up in, in uh, some length. He will speak about our Lord Jesus. And we have here, uh, we have a number of things here about who the Holy Spirit is, which we'll look at, as I said, at the end of our series. But we also have very clearly here a critical part of the work of the Spirit. He will speak about Christ. He will speak about Jesus. He will testify to who Jesus is what Jesus has done. 
Or look again at John 16. Now we could spend a lot of time on the verses in John 14 through 16, all of them that talk about the spirit. But look at John 16 and verse 13 um, and 14. When the spirit of truth comes, so this is this, remember in the John 15, 26, Jesus identified that the, the, the comforter is another way of just talking about him. He is the spirit of truth. When he comes, he will speak truth. He will lead us into truth. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from his mind and declare it to you. Um, now, in some ways, uh, the promise that he will guide you into all truth is first and foremost a promise to the apostles. Um, I think this is very, very significant. The all truth I would take to be the material that we have now as the new testament in other words this is not this is i this is sometimes been taken differently it's been taken to mean that the church throughout the history of time uh can have fresh truth being revealed to it um a very favorite uh writer in the um 1960s 70s and 80s Catherine marshall um some of you may recall her books. Uh, she had a book on the Holy Spirit in which she interpreted this verse to mean that the Holy Spirit has been promised to lead all of us into new areas of truth. And um, I would argue that in its immediate application, the you involved here are the apostles. And the all the truth is what we have now as the New Testament. And what the Spirit is now doing is he is now interpreting for us, opening up for us the scriptures. That the revealed truth upon which we build our faith, that has ceased. And that ceased with the end of the apostles. But there is something here that the Spirit is still doing. Uh, uh, he's, not, he's not giving us fresh truth that we can put alongside the scriptures. But he is, notice John 16, uh, verse 14. He is still glorifying me. And um, we'll pick that up in more detail. In fact, I'm going to argue that this is the central work of the Holy Spirit. If, there's, if you were to ask me, so what is the main thing the Spirit has come to do? The main thing is this little, little phrase. Um, in the Greek, it's three words. In English, it's four words. He will glorify me. In other words, it is vital to understand that the Holy Spirit is a Christ-centered spirit, a Christ-glorifying spirit. One of the big things the church has had to wrestle with down through the years is people claiming that they are experiencing the spirit. Um, people claiming that the spirit is at work in their midst. And how does the church decide whether or not that's genuine? 
the revivals, the great revivals uh, of the 18th century, or the revival that we call the Reformation, which is a revival as well as a reformation of doctrine. Uh, But the Great Awakening with Jonathan Edwards and the Wesley brothers and George Whitfield, or the various revivals in the 19th century. Um, One thinks of the 1858-1859 revival that began in New York City and then leaped across the Atlantic to impact uh, Belfast in Northern Ireland, then impacted London, where Spurgeon had begun his ministry. Um, Or more recent days, some of us remember, well, I remember it by hearsay, being told about it later, but 1970, uh, the Saskatoon revival with Bill McLeod at Ebenezer Baptist Church and the Satara Twins. Uh, How do we determine if these are real? It could be simply an upsurge of emotion and enthusiasm. Uh, Again, uh, one thing I do remember very vividly is in the early 1990s, uh, claims a revival for what is known as the Airport Vineyard. This is a vineyard church uh, that met in a hangar um, at um, Pearson Airport. And there were things that happened on that occasion Um, and it went on for quite a while, that raised questions. Is this the way the Holy Spirit acts? And this is a very, very important question. So the the New Testament doesn't, uh, is not uh, without answers to that question. And the, the, the bottom line answer is, when he comes, he will glorify me. How do I know this is of the Spirit? Is Christ exalted? Is Christ glorified? Are we more Christ-centered in our thinking, in our praying, in our actions, in our living? So these were promises for the future. And uh, there's one other verse that I want to look at before we get to the central verse uh, text that I want to look at, which is Acts 2. And that verse is Luke 24. Luke 24 and verse number 49. So just before the Gospel of John, right at the very end, this is after. Now, Jesus spoke the words that we've just read uh, before his suffering, what we call his passion, uh, before his death on the, what we call Good Friday, and before his resurrection on the Easter Sunday. And uh, during the period of time that Jesus, the resurrected, risen Christ, was with his disciples, we're told in the book of Acts that he was with his disciples for 40 days, teaching them. And Luke 24, verse 49, is one of the things he told them. Luke 24 and verse 49. Look, he said, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. And uh, the idea that this is something the father has promised goes all the way back to Joel. Joel is a, is a text that at this point records events and words that have gone, it goes back 700 years before these words of our Lord Jesus. Um, one of the things we have to often get, get used to is that God's timing is not our timing. There is a 
purposes in history for various events and so on. And the, the promise of Joel, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, which is accompanied by reiterations of that in Isaiah and Ezekiel and other passages. <clears throat> um, that is described here by Jesus. This is the promise of the Father. It was the great American theologian, Jonathan Edwards, who said the great, the great gift that the, the, our Lord Jesus Christ suffered and died for was to give to his people the promise of the Father, namely the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I think he's right. And Jesus says that promise that, that generations long to see you will experience. You need to wait in Jerusalem, that's the city, until you are empowered from on high. And so Pentecost, Jesus clearly identifies, Pentecost is an experience of power. So let's turn then, this is all background. And let's turn then to Acts chapter two. And um, maybe while you're turning, I'm happy to take maybe some initial questions. Um, there is the chat feature there. Um, or if you want to unmute yourselves, um, you can um, do it, do so that way. So uh, this is not a sermon per se. Um, so um, I'm happy to, to take any questions at this point. If you want to wait till the end, that's perfectly fine. But it might be appropriate uh, if you've got some questions on the material that I've looked at. Um, if you wanted to ask a question at this point. Okay, nope. Okay, as I said, at the end, we'll pick up questions again. So, uh, Acts chapter 2. This is a very familiar chapter um, to you, I'm sure. And um, I'm going to read a good portion of it because we have the Joel passage quoted here, but we also have Peter's explanation of it, which brings out, it'll be three, uh, your kind of classic sermon uh, division. There are going to be three main points that I want to make. So uh, Acts chapter two, let's begin at verse one. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound, like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the scripture enabled them. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation and under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and were confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all those who are, are speaking Galileans? How is it then that each one of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia and Judea and the Cappadocia, uh, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? 
But some sneered and said, they're drunk on new wine. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and proclaimed to them, fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I will pour, I'll even pour out my spirit on your servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord come, before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, or sorry, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless men to nail him up to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pain of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to, in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to send one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended in the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. It's an absolutely tremendous text. It's bedrock to understanding the flow of history. It's the birthday of the church, as we describe it in a real sense. Um, but it's also bedrock to understanding uh, the Holy Spirit and the work of the Spirit. Um, a passage like this often leads people to focus on the, what are the external signs of the presence of the Spirit, namely the tongues. The tongues is not uh, a sign that or uh, an event that occurs every time there is an outpouring of the Spirit in the book of Acts. We don't have time to go through all of them, but if you look at them, there are about four or five uh, similar events to the day of Pentecost, um, kind of repetitions um, of that day. And tongues is not there 
always. Um, the idea that tongues is an, uh, an event, the speaking in foreign languages. And by the way, it is foreign languages. It's not some sort of, um, as some charismatics will say today, angelic speech. It's foreign languages. Languages that these men could not have learned. That's very, that's very clear. Um, uh, this is not an, in, uh, an indubitable sign of the Spirit. Um, it occurs uh, three times in the New Testament. Um, its presence in the history of the church is limited. But it's easy to focus on that event uh, because of the past century, the rise of the Pentecostal movement, uh, and the rise of uh, the Charismatic movement, and then what sometimes is called the third wave in the 1990s, the vineyard. But the passage should lead us to focus on somewhat different things. Um, there are three really kind of prominent things that come out that re relate to the Holy Spirit. First of all, Pentecost reveals the great reason for the coming of the Spirit, and that is to bring glory to our Lord Jesus. We've already seen this in John 16, verse 14. Remember, I said this little phrase, he will glorify me. That is the heart of the new covenant ministry of the, of the Holy Spirit. If you don't understand that, you don't understand what the Spirit is as God has given his Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit to do. He is to bring glory to Christ. Uh, secondly, the experience of Pentecost means that the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ will be indwelt by the Spirit. And um, uh, there's a big question here, which I'm not going to have time to fully answer, but it raises a huge, a huge question. Is this not the experience of the Old Testament saint? Were they not indwelt by the Spirit? And um, I've been thinking about this for, for many years, and my answer has changed in more recent years, probably in the last 10 years. Um, probably about 20 years ago, I would have said, of course, the Old Testament saint experienced the Holy Spirit in exactly the same way as the New Testament saint. But that doesn't seem to be exactly true from the, New, the, the scriptures themselves. We experience the Spirit as the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, tying it back to the first reason for Pentecost. The Old Testament saint doesn't know about the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't have that name, Jesus. Uh, the term Christ is, as you know, a title. that means the Anointed One, the Messiah. Um, in fact, the tying together of the Spirit and the Messiah in the Old Testament it's only there in a few passages. Usually the spirit in the Old Testament is tied to God, um, which is probably in the light of the New Testament to be understood God, as God the Father. Um, the Old Testament, in fact, the Old Testament saint doesn't really fully understand the Trinity either, right? Uh, they know God as in that great cry to Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Um, it's the New Testament that reveals that within the oneness of the Godhead, there are three, the Son and the Spirit. Think of the baptismal formula of Matthew 28, 19, uh, that we are to baptize believers in the name 
of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in the final session. Um, the Pentecostal experience of the Spirit. And please try to remove from your mind. I, I actually use the, the adjective Pentecostal on a number of occasions. It's gotten me into trouble because people think, ah, he's become a Pentecostal theologically. Um, I'm using it the way Spurgeon would have used it before the rise of the Pentecostal movement, or the way John Wesley would have used it, or the way the great uh, John Owen, who was a Puritan leader, would have used it. It means the experience of the believer in light of Pentecost. That Pentecostal experience, which entails the indwelling of the Spirit for all of God's people, is, I would argue, something that is not true of every Old Testament saying. In the Old Testament, God dwelt among his people in the temple. The temple was the dwelling place of God. That's why that vision in Ezekiel, I'm assuming you know that vision, where God is speaking judgment upon Judah, the southern kingdom, and you, Ezekiel has the vision of the Spirit of God leaving the temple. That is utterly, utterly horrifying. It means that God is leaving the land. And the, the city where he said, I will place my name there. It is horrifying to a, a faithful, God-fearing Jew like Ezekiel. Because this is the place where God was, 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 was among his people. It was the physical temple. But in the New Testament, God now dwells in each of the believers as his temple. And the body of Christ is his temple. That's a... That's a very important point. So the second point that we're making then is um, the indwelling experience of the Spirit, which we're going to look at in more detail. Um, um, in the next two weeks, we're going to think about the work of the Spirit and what does it mean to experience the Spirit. And I'm a, I'm a big believer. And I'm not Pentecostal, obviously. I'm a Baptist. Uh, I'm a big believer that the Christian should know that he is indwelt by the Spirit or she is indwelt by the Spirit. You should know. Uh, but, but Paul asked the question of the Ephesians in Acts 19. Do you know that the Spirit, have you received the Spirit? And they, they, they said, we don't know. Well, immediately Paul said, he, he knew immediately these people aren't Christians. You should know the presence of the Spirit in your life. Um, and we'll look at various ways in which I think the New Testament teaches that very clearly. But that's the, the second point. The indwelling of the Spirit is part of Pentecost. The third is power, empowerment. God's intention for ancient Israel was that Israel would be a witness to the nations, and the nations would come to Israel to learn about God. That's why you get the prophets always talking about, in the last days, men and women will come up to Jerusalem. In the New Covenant, the church, beginning at Jerusalem, which the rabbi said is the center of the earth, beginning at Jerusalem will take the gospel to the nations. So you've got this interesting kind of fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets by a reversal of direction. In the Old Testament, the nations will come to Israel to learn of God. In the New Covenant, that is fulfilled by the church taking the gospel to the nations. 
And how are they going to do this? By the Spirit. The idea that we could evangelize with our programs and our plans, which are not in themselves wrong, and we need to strategize, but that we could do this by ourselves is folly. Uh, Zechariah 4, unless the Lord raise up a standard in the world by his spirit, it'll be, it'll, and it'll not be by might nor by power, but by the spirit, we labor in vain. And that's why the great need we have every week as the gospel is proclaimed is the spirit. You as God's people, I as one of God's people need to be praying as we join in worship. That God, the Holy Spirit, will be there in power um, to enable the word to come home to us, to build up the people of God, to glorify Christ, to save sinners. And uh, so that's the great, that's the third thing of Pentecost is empowerment. So Christ oriented, Christ centered, the indwelling of the spirit, and then the empowerment of the spirit. So you'll notice. Now, let me go look at the text in, in detail. You'll notice um, that when uh, Peter, uh, the event takes place, right? You have the, the coming of the spirit. Sounds like wind. Uh, the Greek word for spirit also means wind or breath. And so it's interesting. It's a play on words. Uh, Jesus does this in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus comes to him. Um, when he says, Jesus uh, tells Nicodemus, you know, there's no way you can enter the kingdom unless you're born again. Well, how's this going to happen? I'm an old man. I have to go back into my mother's womb. I, like, the idea is just horrifying. I mean, what are you talking about? And he's talking about being born of the spirit. And Jesus uses the illustration, uh, you know, the wind blows where it wills. And you've got no idea where it's going and where it's coming from. And likewise with the spirit. And... Um, It'd be very easy to look at that passage and think, oh, yeah, okay, that's the, you know, the ancient world. They had no idea about, you know, where, where winds were coming from. We, we know today because, you know, you, you listen to the newsmen and we're, we, we're experiencing a great Colorado uh, low or, you know, it, the wind is coming out of the Arctic. And uh, to be honest, the more I listen to weathermen today, you think they know what they're talking about. They have no idea what tomorrow will be like in terms of weather. It's, it's amazing. I, I, I think weatherman knew better 25 years ago maybe that's the sign of my age you know things were always better in the past uh, i hope i'm not thinking that way but anyway um jesus i mean jesus words are still very very pertinent you, you know you you have no idea where the wind is coming from so it is with the spirit and in the greek which is the original it's a play on words because the greek word for spirit is pneuma and the Greek word for wind is pneuma. So Jesus says, you've no idea where the pneuma is coming from, where, where it blows, where it will. So it is with the pneuma. And the first pneuma is the wind. The second is the spirit. And so it's the, the imagery of, we began the, our time together with the imagery of water. And the second image is wind. And we see that in the book of Acts there. The wind rushes into the place. And these men are filled with the spirit and they speak in other languages. And then a crowd gathers and says, well, what's going on here? And some say, oh, yeah, we know what's going on. These guys are drunk. We've got no idea what they're saying. It must be it's complete gibberish to us. They're drunk. And Peter stands up 
as the spokesperson. What a pe- what a change in this man who had denied our Lord, um, as Jesus predicted. And but now is empowered, forgiven, restored, and stands up and proclaims the gospel. And uh, we'll see as how that plays out. Now you notice, notice the question they've asked. Okay, so we've they've heard the wind. Maybe they've definitely seen the apostle speaking in other languages. What does that mean? Peter doesn't say anything about. Well, he, he quotes the passage in Joel, but then he explains. He says, "This is what was promised." Joel two, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. But then he immediately goes on to talk about Jesus. He doesn't say anything about the spirit until right at the end. uh, Where he says, um, Jesus is now at the right hand of the father. By the way, that's something we we don't think about uh, rarely. Uh, we, We think about the incarnation. We're coming up to that event, right? Christmas, Advent. Um, we think about the crucifixion, the resurrection, but equally important is what theologians call the session of Christ. Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And the Father has given into him all authority over heaven and earth and authority to give the Spirit. But you'll notice that Peter, Peter doesn't immediately start talking about the Spirit. He immediately starts talking about Jesus. And he only gets to the spirit. He quotes the passage in Joel, but he says nothing about the spirit until he gets to uh, verse 33. With that is what, again, as I say, when Peter, when Peter preaches in the power of the spirit, he preaches Christ. He doesn't immediately say, okay, so this is the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what Joel said. And let me talk about tongues. He doesn't say anything about that. He preaches our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes to the events of the cross. He goes to, you know who this Jesus of Nazareth is. He walked among us. He did great signs. And and God had purposed that he would die for the sins of the nation and for the sins of, 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 of humanity. And, uh, You, you, you Jews, you hearers of me, turned him over to godless, lawless men, and he was crucified. But death could not hold him, and God raised him from the dead. And we're witnesses of that. He is now at the right hand of the Father. And what you're seeing is his gift of the Spirit. So that's what I said. The, 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 the experience of pentecost in the life of the church is a christ glorifying event and the main work of the holy spirit is to glorify our lord jesus christ one of the great privileges i've had over the years is um was to teach at sembeck um i'm assuming you all know what sembeck is um uh, seminar baptiste evangelique de quebec uh, the french seminary in montreal um, we had, um, um, a, um, Francophone student attend Central Baptist Seminary in 1980, 
1984, 84, 85, his name was Francois Picard, who would eventually become the director of Sembeck. And I'm, I can still remember him asking me, it was on the third floor of the seminary building on Jonesville Crescent. He said, would you be interested in coming to Quebec to teach? I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, my French wasn't bad. Uh, I could read French fairly fluently. Um, I spoke in French, at least uh, my understanding of Quebecois, the Quebecois accent was left a lot to be desired, but I didn't know that. I, like most of us, when we learn French, we learn Parisian French, which is of, it's good for reading, but it's of little value in one sense of speaking in Quebec because the accent is so different. And uh, so I said, yes. Yep. And so in 1985, the summer of 85, saw me go off to Montreal for two weeks. And uh, I did that for 25 years up until the early 2000s. And what an experience it was in so many ways. It was, it was such a privilege to be with these brethren. Um, the old seminary was located in the West Island on Gouin Boulevard. And it was in um, a very, very wealthy area of Montreal. Houses that today probably sell for two or three million given the market. And um, I would teach all day. And then in the evening after dinner, I would take a walk in the neighborhood. And I remember noticing a number of houses. They were stupendous homes. And a number of houses had spotlights out on the home. And because what they wanted was people like me, <laughs> as you're walking along or driving along, to kind of ooh and on. Kind of, oh, wow, look at the size of the house. You know, these, these places, you could tell some of them have indoor pools. In fact, I think I remember one of them with, you can actually see the glassed-in indoor pool. You know, and the, 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 pool, it, the pool itself could take my, our entire house, you know, maybe 1,800, 2,000 square feet, whatever. You could stick it in the pool area. Then when there was the house. And so you're, you've got these spotlights on the house. Now, the goal of the spotlight was not to focus on the spotlight. So I was walking along and I, I saw the spotlights. Wow, that's, a, that's an interesting spotlight. wonder where they bought that. You know, was it Canadian Tire uh, or um, Home Hardware um, or the equivalents in Quebec? Or now, why did they put it at that angle? Right? You know, maybe the better angle would have been better. Or why, why couldn't they have gotten a, uh, a red spotlight or a green spotlight? Why, why are they all white? Well, well the purpose of the spotlight would, would, would be frustrated, right? The spotlight is not designed to focus on the spotlight. The spotlight is designed to focus on the house. You don't have to look at the spotlight. You look at the house. That's our Lord Jesus's intention for the Spirit. The Spirit's ministry is to focus us on Christ. His ministry is a spotlight ministry. This does not mean it's, not, it's, in a, it's inappropriate to talk about the Spirit. We must talk about the Spirit, the great promise of the Old Testament. But if our focus again and again and again is the Spirit and not the Lord Jesus, there's something wrong. The Spirit has come to glorify Him. The Father's great delight is that His Son be glorified. That's how we know that a cult like Jehovah's Witnesses is false. 
it betrays the heart of the New Testament, let alone the fact that they, they argue that our salvation is accomplished by a creature. If Jesus be not God, we are not saved. Let alone that it fails to understand the central thrust of the New Testament, which is the glorification of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Father's great desire. This is why he sends the Spirit. This is the Spirit's great work. This is why, again, you know, a religion like Islam is a false religion. They, den they deny the glory. They rob the Lord Jesus of his glory. And that's very, very important. And some of our Pentecostal and charismatic brethren sometimes miss this. They get so focused on the spirit, they forget he has come to glorify Christ. That's the first thing. The second thing, and I need to move along more quickly, is the whole idea of the indwelling of the spirit. Um, we'll see this in more detail uh, next week. And so I can... I don't need to spend as much time here as I did on the first point. Um, Pentecost is a new event. Um, prior to this event, Old Testament saints were regenerate. And the Spirit did regenerate Old Testament saints, but he didn't indwell them as he indwells them in the New Testament. And as I said, I, I, this, is a, this is a big, this is a controversial issue. And I've changed my view on this. I would have held probably 20 years ago that the indwelling of the spirit in the Old Testament saints is identical to the new. But there is a, there is a discontinuity between the old and the new. As Baptists, we should know that, right? Um, membership in the people of God today is through believers' baptism. This is the way I become. Uh, I join a local church. It's not through circumcision at eight days old. There's discontinuity between the Old and the New Testament in a number of areas. Same God, but he's, he's, the, the, there are differences between national Israel as the body that he's working with, and then in the New Covenant with the church. The church obviously is linked intrinsically to Israel, uh, Romans chapter 11. But there are differences, and one of the differences is the new covenant believer, every new covenant believer is indwelt by the spirit. That's why uh, Moses says when the spirit was poured out in an Old Testament event in the camp of Israel as they're on their wilderness journey. And uh, Moses says, would that every one of God's people was a prophet? Well, in the new covenant, by the indwelling of the spirit, that has been fulfilled. Um. We'll look at this in more detail uh, in the next couple of sessions. And then the final item is power. Um, there are big, big debates about why the Spirit has been sent in the last two or three hundred years. John Wesley believed, and Methodists held this very strongly in the 19th century, that the Holy Spirit has come to uh, enable us uh, to be a people of love. And in fact, Wesley argued that after Pentecost, it is possible for a Christian to not sin in thought, word, or deed. And that's why the Spirit has come. The Spirit has come to help us to fight sin. But um, we would probably differ from Wesley on, on those couple of points. He is a Spirit of love. 
Um, but that's not the central work. As I said, the central work is the glorification of our Lord Jesus. In the, ninth, the 20th century, Pentecostals have argued power. Um, the Holy Spirit has come to give us power. Remember the Luke 24, 49 uh, empowerment. And in fact, this is not completely uh, divorced from, from the Acts chapter 2 passage. Because it's quite clear that after this, well, Acts 2 itself speaks of power. Here is a man and the disciples who are cowering in fear. The risen Christ appeared among them and gave them power to stand there and bear witness to the truth. And um, look at Acts chapter 1-8, which we didn't read, but speaks about the prediction uh, the event of Acts 2. Acts 1.8, Jesus says this. Um, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so uh, I probably should have had you uh, had us read this before we read the Acts 2 passage. Because what's going on in Acts 2 is empowerment. Empowerment to take the gospel. God intends... That the church take the gospel to the nations, which, as I said, is an interesting fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that the nations will come to Jerusalem. How will the nations come to God and come to know the living God through the witness of the church? And uh, the church is empowered at Pentecost to take the gospel to the nations. So, what is Pentecost? It is a Christ-centered, a Christ-glorifying event. This is, this is bedrock. We cannot understand who the Spirit is, what he has come to do, if we don't understand that. His great delight is making men and women and children Christ-centered people, Christ-glorifying people, men and women who live for the glory of our Lord Jesus. The second thing. Um, that uh, Pentecost is, it is the indwelling of the Spirit. The great promise of the Old Testament, that God would pour out his Spirit, that all of God's people would be prophets, is fulfilled at Pentecost. We now have dwelling, we, now, we don't have to go and live in the physical land of Israel. Uh, God's temple, as you know, was torn down by the Romans. But God is still among his people. When uh, John Wesley was dying in 1791, among his final words were these, uh, to take heart, God is with us. And that, that is God's great promise, that he is with his people, wherever they might be, by his spirit. We are not alone. This is one of the bedrock truths of the Christian faith. We often think, you know, the the deity of Christ, the Trinity, justification by faith, the resurrection of the body. But another bedrock truth is God is with us by his spirit. That is absolutely foundational. The promise of the Old Testament has been fulfilled at Pentecost. And then thirdly, power, power to take the gospel. That means we should be a people who pray for the empowerment of the spirit. Uh, not in the sort of miracle of tongues but in the simple way of using our voices for him, living for him, 
it's very interesting that Charles Spurgeon and some of us might be scared to bits by this. And uh, I'll bring my talk to a close at this point, and then we can take questions if you have them. Uh, Charles Spurgeon sometimes will be preaching, and I'm sure pastors and preachers do this, but they don't often do it the way Spurgeon did. He'd stop in the middle of preaching, and he'd start to pray for the Spirit to come in power. He, he closes his eyes and pray, Holy Spirit, come, take my the truth that I've just spoken and apply it to the heart of the people. Then he'd go on preaching. And I know some of us would be scared silly uh, as the pastor gone Pentecostal. And in fact, one, I think one of the great challenges for us as, as Baptists is we have seen in the 20th century the excesses of Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement and the vineyard movement. And it scared us about the spirit. Yet the, this is the one who we long to have in our midst in power, empowering the word, drawing sinners to Christ, enabling us to love the Lord Jesus and live for him more, more nearly, enabling us to pray and to worship. And we're scared of him? No. Brothers and sisters, we need to pray that the Spirit would be among us in power, as he has promised, uh, to glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let me stop here. Um, there's a lot there, I know, and um, but I'm happy to take questions. As I said, some of the themes that we'll pick up in the next couple of weeks will reiterate some of the things that I've said today. I have one question, um, kind of ties into what you were um, just talking about. There's, you know, some denominations that talk quite a lot about praying to the spirit. And I was wondering if you could go over that a bit. Yep. Yeah. Is it, is it appropriate to pray to the spirit? I will touch on this uh, in a subsequent lecture. Um, yes, I do believe it is. Um, I don't think it's inappropriate to, to pray to the spirit. Um from the patterns of prayer that our Lord gives us and the New Testament gives us, um, <clears throat> that's not the normal way we pray. Uh, we normally follow the pattern that Jesus said, our Father. We normally pray to the Father. Um, we have examples of prayer to Jesus in the New Testament. Um, uh, Paul, for instance, in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, I besought the Lord to remove what he describes as a thorn in the flesh. And the Lord there is quite clearly the Lord Jesus. First uh, Corinthians one verses one and two, where Paul describes the church at Corinth. They are those who call upon the name of the Lord of the Lord. Um, that's the Lord Jesus. Usually when the, Paul uses the word Lord, 90% of the time he means Christ and not the father. But there are a couple of places in the, in the New Testament where you have uh, prayer to the Holy Spirit. Well, first of all, the Holy Spirit is God. It's not inappropriate to pray to the Spirit as God. Um, I remember one occasion. I'll, I'll turn you to, um, uh, to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. But before I do that, uh, Revelation 1, verses 4 and 5. Um, I remember my daughter when she was 12 had um appendicitis and um we took her to it, it came on very suddenly one one saturday morning these, these things always happen right on the weekends 
And we, we took her to McMaster Hospital in Hamilton. And um, she was in very dire pain. And in fact, her appendix had burst. And I just remember going into a washroom and crying out to the Spirit of God. Well, just simply, please help us. And um, uh, that was not in a, I don't think that was inappropriate at all. But let me, let me uh, turn you to Revelation 1. Revelation 1, 4, and 5 is a prayer. And John says this. Uh, John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. It's Trinitarian. <clears throat> the one who is, who is and who was and is to come is the Father. John is building here on, his, on Exodus 3, where God tells Moses, when you go to Israel and uh, they ask who sent you, say, I am who I am. John's building on that. That's the Father. The Lord Jesus Christ is quite clearly here. And the seven spirits are the Holy Spirit. Um, Revelation is filled with number symbolisms, you know, 666, 144,000, <clears throat> etc. And seven is the number of perfection in the book of Revelation. And we have the seven spirits are mentioned again in Revelation 4 and 5. And it's clearly the Holy Spirit. So John is praying, may, the may God the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ send you grace and peace. So it is not inappropriate uh, to pray to the Spirit. It's not the norm, but it's not inappropriate. Um, <clears throat> somebody asked, I'm often fearful to exhort a sister or brother in Christ. However, if we discern that something is wrong or a false teaching of the Spirit, uh, how, how might we address that in love? I find it easier when dealing with the written word. Yes. Um, yeah, this is a challenge. Again, a lot depends upon the person we're talking to, uh, how well we know them. Um, and uh, sometimes it is easier. Um, I, I'm assuming uh, that you, you see somebody committing something you think is wrong or teaching something is wrong. And uh, rather than speaking to them directly, you write to them, I guess, maybe. Um, Here, I can unmute myself. I have Oh, go ahead. It's, it's not always quiet. I thought I would write instead of try to silence the noise, but it is quiet right now. Um, it's more in the sense of I had a friend years ago who was going to go to California to join a very charismatic church where they believed that the spirit moved, things fell from the ceiling, um, all kinds of things like that. And and there's there's things that I felt I could say, but this experiential kind of understanding of the spirit, how it often is difficult to sway, right? Well, I've experienced it. Well, interesting. You did experience something, what I'm not sure. Um, and so it's kind of in those gray areas where there's this mysticism kind of attached to it, because I do agree with what you're talking about, that it is, to glorify Jesus, that there is a very substantial task of the Holy Spirit, and it doesn't seem to be so mystical in my perspective. Yep. Um, number one, I, I think it's uh, that 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 is bedrock. You know, you have to ask the. Uh, I mean, if I was in this situation and I knew the person well enough that I could ask them, I would say, you know, to what do, to what degree do you think that our Lord Jesus Christ is being focused upon and glorified 
and the work of Christ and the person of Christ exalted? Um, or is attention being paid to the phenomena? Um, there are some phenomena, they are so bizarre that I think we can immediately, on the basis of the scriptures and the history of the church, rule them out. That No, God does not do this. Um, I do not believe that God leads human beings to act like animals. So during the, um, the vineyard movement, there were, there were people on the floor. I remember uh, an event took place where there were two pastors on the floor pawing at each other like lion cubs. And somebody raised the question, like, what's going on here? And the person at the front said, well, they're, spirit, they're filled with the spirit of the lion of Judah. That's why they're imitating lion cubs. Uh, we are human beings. And I, I don't believe that God violates our humanity by leading us to act like beasts and animals. And I, I think, and I'm not, not trying to denigrate animals here at all. Um, so I think there are things that we could say, you know, we can rule them out. Like, uh, without naming names, that there was one, he's still living, a famous uh really left-wing charismatic evangelist and uh they used to have meetings where there'd be gold dust falling from the ceiling and he claimed this was jesus his sign he was on his white stallion on the st golden streets of jerusalem and the stallion was kicking up his his feet eager to come the second coming to take place and the gold dust you were seeing in the room were the sign of that. And well, the whole thing was a hoax. It was just, it, 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 there was no reality to it all. And it was, uh, it was manufactured. Um, so there are things that we can say, no, this is not the spirit. Um, but I do think that we are, because of a uh, hundred years of Pentecostalism, more than that, Pentecostal movement was the first, you know, 1906, and then the charismatic movement in the 60s, the, the vineyard in the 90s. Uh, as Baptists, I think sometimes we're afraid of the Holy Spirit. And I think there are some of these extraordinary phenomena that take place among us uh, in ways that, yeah, I mean, if, if you hear them, they, well, that sounds like charismatic or Pentecostal. Um, like sometimes dreams. I think sometimes God still can speak to his people through a dream. Um, most dreams we don't remember, but I remember being in a fellowship church in Snowden, Montreal, uh, English-speaking church, and there were about 40, I'm, my father's Kurdish from Iraq, and so I'm very interested in the Kurds, and um, there were 40 Iranian Kurds in this church, and I remember the pastor, uh, Ken Godon, uh, uh, telling me, you, you'll be very interested in knowing how they were converted. Um, he said it all began when a couple, one night, had a dream. Now, notice I said a couple. I mean, our dreams are singular, right? <laughs> we don't share our dreams. They had the identical dream. And in the dream, they sensed a person coming to them who they knew was Jesus. And he told them, you need to find a Bible to find out who I am. They both woke up. They said to each other, I've had an extraordinary dream. And then they found out it was the identical dream. The dream didn't convert them. The Bible was central to that. But 
their three sons couldn't believe this. Both the parents were converted and then the three sons. And that was an in to this Iranian Kurdish community in Montreal. Um, that sounds very charismatic, Pentecostal. And in one sense, it maybe it is. And I think that probably these things are more common among Baptists than we care to admit. And they're less common among Pentecostals and charismatics than they would want to admit too. And um, so um, there are these phenomena that do take place. Um, I think as Baptists, we are, I think we are afraid of the spirit. And um, because of the excesses, and wrong teaching. There are some left-wing charismatics who even the charismatic movement, mainstream charismatic movement disown, who are just way out there. People like Benny Hinn, um, Creflo Dollar, and I will name names because these guys are public. And I think to some degree, these people are teaching false teaching. And they're misrepresenting our Lord Jesus Christ and his work and the Holy Spirit, seriously misrepresenting them. And uh, we see that, and I think it's kind of, we, we've, we've had a knee-jerk reaction in which we do not talk about the Spirit. But our great need is the Spirit. Our great need as churches here in Ontario is revival, which in days gone by was talked about as the outpouring of the Spirit, in which God moves with power and saves men and women. <clears throat> that is the only uh, that's the only hope for Canada. We are we are we are engaged in a massive social experiment which is horrifying both in terms of the way we treat the unborn uh issues of gender exposing children under the age of 10 or 12 to things that they shouldn't be even be thinking about. Um the whole read redefining marriage, the foundation of any stable society. I mean, I don't need to tell you all this. You know all this. And we, we need to pray for that God would pour out his spirit, that he would have mercy on our nation. And um, we, 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 we should not be afraid of the spirit. We need, we need him to come and save sinners and to glorify Jesus. And to enable us to live to his glory. Um, just this past week, um, I won't go into detail. I heard of a, well, it's actually the last past month. I heard of a very close friend um, who's been living, a, he's, a, he's a pastor, he's been living a life of deception for at least four to five years uh, in, in the whole area of finance. And oh, that God would come and enable us. We profess Jesus, oh, that we would live in our thoughts and words, in accord with our profession. And we need the spirit to do that. Any other questions? We, we have maybe five minutes for one question. If not, um, maybe Pastor McCallum could close us in prayer. I have a, a quick question. Yep. Um, we talked a little bit about like the sequence and you know, the uh, John Edwards quote, I believe about, you know, one of the greatest gifts of Jesus coming was the spirit. Yep. And Jesus himself says, I have to go so the spirit can come. I'm just kind of curious about the sequence. Why Jesus first and then the spirit? Um, why not the spirit first to help those in Jesus' time understand Jesus himself when he was present? 
Yeah. So obviously, uh, Jesus is, I mean, the spirit is there resident in one sense in Israel because of the temple. So the spirit is there. And uh, so the question, one of the interesting questions is, at what point did the, were the disciples converted? Um, I tend to think probably before Pentecost, after the resurrection, but all that aside. Um, yeah, the Messiah must first do his work, which is the cross. And... Um, the, the spirit is given on the basis of the cross. Because if the, in the Acts passage, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. The Father gives to our, our Savior, he bestows on him the name of Lord, which is the divine title of God in the Old Testament. And we're, we're obviously talking in terms of the humanity of Christ here and not his deity. But in terms of the humanity, the, the Messiah must first do his work. The gift of the Spirit is predicated on the cross. That's why the cross has to take central uh, place in our teaching. If Christ had not died on the cross, the Spirit couldn't be given. But Christ has died on the cross for our sins, raised for our justification, is now seated at the right hand of the Father, declared to be Lord, and the Father's great delight is to to give the spirit to his son, to give to his people. And so the work of the Messiah must come first. It's the foundation for the gift of the spirit. So just as the spirit is a Christ-centered spirit, so the gift of the spirit is a cross-centered event. Without the cross, the spirit could not have been given. Because the spirit... What the Spirit does is he brings us into union with the crucified Jesus. We are now in Christ. But you couldn't have that before, right? Because you hadn't had the cross. So you have to have the, the, the crucified and risen Christ. And we declare that in baptism. That's why one of the reasons I am, a, I am a Baptist. And I believe totally in believer's baptism by immersion as the, the way in which we enter the local church. Because we are declaring in that act of going down into the water and up from the water, that we are in Christ. We have died with Christ, and we've been raised to newness of life. So all of that, so in other words, the, 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 uh, the gift of the Spirit is rooted and grounded in the cross work and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Thank you. Uh, that's a very good question. Okay, we, we should close at this point. Um, next week, we'll look at the work of the Spirit, as particularly as is uh, laid out in the letters of the Apostle Paul. And uh, Well, actually, it'll be two weeks, right? Yeah, right. it's in two weeks. Right. Yeah. And uh, so, Pastor McCallum, if you maybe have something to say or if you'd like to close in prayer. But thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, uh, Michael. Uh, has been a great uh, start to our uh, discursion in terms of uh, the Holy Spirit. Lots of uh, stimulation there and uh, thought. And uh, thank you very much. My pleasure. Let's just uh, let's just pray, and I just uh, pronounce a benediction on us as we uh, as we go. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit 
be with you all. Amen. Thank you. We'll look forward to seeing you in, in two weeks. Two weeks. God bless.